is rich in a church And I am a massive deal Fear me, love me, stand and stare at me And these, these are real Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, May 20th, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. So uh, I'm not going to ask you guys about Yanni and Laurel, but did you watch <laughs> either the royal wedding or the, or the Preakness yesterday? <laughs> no. neither none no, of them not in my case <laughs> but michael you did see another sort of uh wedding there over in in london town when uh, you visited my fair lady finally this week so tell us uh what was your talks what was your thoughts on my fair lady well it's interesting that you phrase it that way because that is the big question isn't it uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> of what happens in the end, or after the end, I should say. Um, I, I was late to the party for this My Fair Lady. Uh, initially, I was supposed to see it three weeks ago, I think, but uh, there was a scheduling difficulty. And then I rescheduled, uh, but Dame Diana Rigg was ill and missed that performance, so they uh, asked me, the press office asked me to come another night, which I was happy to do. Uh, so um, I, ha- I have, I wrote some notes. It's, I think it's vital, really vital to have an open mind towards new interpretations of classics. But for me, director Bartlett shows production of My Fair Lady for Lincoln Center Theater includes just dozens of what I would say are questionable decisions in terms of direction, acting, and design. And I don't mean questionable in terms of the tradition of the way these roles have been played and the way the piece has been directed, but just in terms of the characters as and plot as presented in the script. Uh, in my I've always thought that George Bernard Shaw's, Shaw's Pygmalion and hence Lerner and Lowe's My Fair Lady uh, have always been proto-feminist works. That That's how I've always seen them. But here, that point, there's an attempt to point uh, to really hammer that point home. And I think sometimes it's it actually has the opposite effect and it's somewhat counterproductive. Um, as Henry Higgins 
Harry Haddon Peyton comes across as to me as extremely nasty and a very unpleasant bully in the first scene, really kind of lacking the humor and the much lighter touch that Rex Harrison brought to the role. Um, he softens a little thereafter, but he never quite exhibits the degree of charm that I think is necessary for the audience to like Higgins in spite of his being so high-handed. Um, also, Haddon Payton sings rather than talk sings much more of the score than any other Higgins I've ever heard. And that may sound fine in theory, except that the melodies for those songs are in large part really quite simple and, and not very tuneful because I believe they were tailored to Harrison and therefore really meant to be talk sung from the get-go. Uh, there are exceptions, the main one being I've Grown Accustomed to Her Face, which is really a beautiful melody. Um, and actually, uh, Haddon Payton does a beautiful job with that. Uh, Lauren Ambrose offers a, a highly intelligent, sensitive, heartfelt performance of Eliza, and her dialect work is exemplary to my ears. But surprisingly, um, uh, she often comes across as more of a victim than a strong woman in several key scenes, which uh, I think the intent was to show that she is a victim who then eventually stands up for herself. But it may be very uncomfortable uh, at several points. Vocally, she exhibits a beautiful, really technically secure soprano voice that would be a pleasure to hear in songs like Wouldn't It Be Loverly and I Could Have Danced All Night, if not for her extremely annoying habit of consistently singing behind the beat, which absolutely drove me crazy. Consistently throughout the night, she would come in a fraction of a second later than she was supposed to. Uh, and I just don't think that musical theater songs uh, – in 99% of the cases are supposed to be sung that way. That's, that's jazz and uh, not musical theater. Um, and finally, uh, about Ambrose, although she is very funny in the Ascot scene, there are other moments where, uh, like Haddon Payton, she, she just lacks the requisite humor. For example, in Just You Wait. Um, I've discussed that number before, I, I remember, um, with Peter uh, in another context, I think that uh, certainly given what's happening to Eliza while she's being tutored by Higgins at his home, you could have a moment early on where she gets ex where she becomes very upset. And that is what uh, happens in Just You Wait, but I think rather brilliantly, Lerner and Lowe wrote it as sort of a comedy number. You're supposed to be amused by um, – the way she uh, – the extent to which she goes in, in picturing how Higgins might uh, might be killed and should be killed for treating her so badly uh, to the point of having the the king up here and, and Eliza demanding Higgins' head. So I, I always thought that that was um, a really smart move on Lerner and Lowe's part to make that a comedy number. But here it's really not. I, I, I don't think the audience – seemed amused. I, I thought they took it very seriously and it didn't work. Um, Jordan Donica as Freddie Einsford Hill uh, has a gorgeous baritone voice, uh, which is very, very enjoyable in On the Street Where You Live. But his performance of that song is also marred by back phrasing and rubato. Uh, Diana Rigg is luxury casting as Mrs. Higgins, but her energy was, was really rather low and her focus somewhat off at the performance I attended. Uh, 
maybe it was the residual effect of her having been ill and missing a few performances during the prior week. Linda Muggleston, Mugleston, I found her overly rigid and very, very cold as Mrs. Pierce. I don't think that characterization worked at all. And Manu Narayan is all wrong for the role of Sultan Car- Carpathy in several ways. Um, and he weirdly offers a, a very offensive, stereotypically gay characterization, which I found incredibly off-putting. Uh, to my mind, the two most satisfying performances of the evening overall come from Norbert Leo Butts, uh, who's really kind of roguishly delightful as Alfie Doolittle, and Alan Corduner, wonderfully warm and funny as Colonel Pickering. I think they offered their own takes on these roles, but didn't do anything to contradict what's in the script, whereas in other cases, that's what certain other people were doing. Um, Just random notes about some changes, cuts, additions, and general oddities of this production. Um, There are snips in the dialogue throughout, even though the show, uh, I believe the performance I saw ran just shy of three hours. Uh, but yes, there are s- snips in the dialogue and also some cuts in songs, including half of the second verse of I'm an Ordinary Man and half of the third verse of A Hymn to Him. I don't know if I've heard anyone else mention those cuts. Uh, maybe, they, maybe they didn't notice. Um, uh, there are also some additions. For example, there's a lengthening of the servants' choruses in Act One, uh, presumably to allow the huge revolving set of Higgins' home to rotate multiple times during that sequence. And to me, the frequency of the revolve, uh, although impressive, was very distracting there and also during Just You Wait, where it, it, it turns like two or three times while uh, Eliza's singing and moving from room to room. Uh, what else? Uh, the character of Freddie Einsford Hill's sister Clara has been added back from Pygmalion, uh, but but almost in name only. I mean, she's a presence on stage, but uh, she's given scarcely a word of dialogue in this production. The brief scene between Higgins and his mother after the horse race scene is supposed to take place in another location on their way out of Ascot. And in the original production, I believe that scene was played as an in-one scene in front of a drop. But here, to allow for a major change of scenery, it's set on the street outside Higgins' house, as if his mother and several of her friends had followed him from Ascot and followed followed him home. So that was very odd. Um, Christopher Gatelli's choreography for this show is typically excellent overall, but I guess I don't understand why there are a bunch of men in drag dancing and get me to the church on time. Uh, another distraction in my mind. Um, in the without you scene in Mrs. Higgins' home, uh, Higgins no longer calls Eliza a brazen, impudent hussy. And Eliza's parting shot to Higgins has been changed from goodbye, Professor Higgins, I shall not be seeing you again, to goodbye, Professor Higgins, I cannot imagine what you will do without me. And that's significant because presumably this change was made to allow for a really radical instance of reconception and restaging of the show's final moment in order to bring the resolution of the Higgins-Eliza relationship more in line I guess, with current views of women's empowerment, even if the restaging is pretty much nonsensical, according to what has gone before. So um, on the very, very 
plus side, this production glories in the original orchestrations by Robert Russell Bennett and Phil Lang, played by a 26-piece orchestra. And you can count them because there is a reveal of the orchestra, but I won't spoil the surprise. Catherine Zuber's costumes are are just glorious also. And Michael Yergin's sets are beautiful and very impressive, very impressive from a technical standpoint, even if the Revolve is too much of a good thing. Uh, you can see, um, for what it's worth, that they spent a ton of money on this production, which is Lincoln Center's want, and and I really appreciate them for that. Um, so overall, this is a sumptuous first-class production that, in my opinion, would have been better off if Bartlett Share hadn't been so intent on a really heavy-handed reinterpretation or over-interpretation of the original material, uh, as in what I thought was his hugely misguided production of Fiddler on the Roof on Broadway, but definitely not the case with his South Pacific and The King and I at Lincoln Center. Um, so I would say mixed feelings on my part, but it's it's just a first-class, really gorgeous-to-look-at production. And Lauren Ambrose um, is quite a revelation in terms of her, her ability as a musical theater actress. And I, I think she has an incredibly bright future in that area if she continues to pursue it. So, Michael, I mean, uh, are you really saying that she's this good simply because this is May 20th, which, of course, is Liza Doolittle Day? <laughs> I had not realized. I thought of it yesterday, and then I forgot this morning. Thank you for pointing that out. So, Michael, were you—you um, uh, I, I, you had mentioned a handful of other of Bartlett's shows. Uh, what did you think of Light in the Piazza, also at the Vivian Beaumont? Oh, I love Light in the Piazza, but of course that's a new piece. Yeah. So uh, mm-hmm. there's not, you know, it's always, uh, I, one certainly understands why people don't just want to copy the work mm-hmm. of artists that came before them. And so uh, that's why I say I really, really try to be open-minded. And I only think when there's a line reading or a bit of staging uh, or whatever that that contradicts what's in the script. Uh, that's when I get upset. Of course, of course it's so subjective. So I, I wouldn't really be able to argue the points very much with anyone who disagrees with me. Mm-hmm. And as for the big dance scene after get me to the church on time or it, mm. as, as part of get me to the church yes. on time sequence, uh, it, perhaps maybe it's just Higgy. <laughs> oh, a reference to uh, an an equally odd moment in Frozen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you for recognizing that. All right, so uh, we will also be lucky to uh, hear this production as Broadway Records announced that they are going. They have already recorded the. Uh, my Fair Lady cast in this revival uh, with a release date of June 8th. So uh, I, I thought that that was an odd release date. I would think that you would try to get it out sooner than later uh, to mm-hmm. at least get into the hands of the uh, some of the voters. But um, we do have that coming from Van Dien and Broadway Records uh, and the beautiful design by our friend Robbie Rizal. Another uh, another revival cast album that was recently announced and is a very pleasant surprise to me because I just didn't think they would do it is the uh, City Center Brigadoon. That's right. With Kelly O'Hara. Oh, uh, Kelly. 
Pat, Patrick Wilson, at uh, Stephanie Block, etc. So I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, we talked about that with uh, Matt on today on Broadway, uh, and I was uh, pleasantly surprised uh, because I didn't think uh, so long after the production that that it's such a delay in the announcement there. I, I'm not sure if they already recorded it, but I think it's a studio recording. I don't think it's a live recording as far as I remember the press release. But, uh, yeah, there's a studio recording because there were uh, – actually, I saw some photos of um, – actually, what I saw was a photo of Robert Fairchild in this studio. Apparently, he has one line of dialogue on the, <laughs> on the recording because his character is a non-singing character. Uh, and, uh, of course, after you listen to this recording, it goes away for 100 years. <laughs> comes mm-hmm. I have to uh, give credit to that joke to Matt Tamanini. <laughs> he came up with that first. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, you know, on this Sunday morning, let's talk about something wonderful. And, of course, I'm talking about the new Rodgers and Hammerstein's book by Todd Purdom. Peter and Michael, you have had a chance to read it. So, uh, Peter, why don't you get us started on that? Well, I think this book is terrific. And um, one of the reasons is there are so many stories that I didn't uh, come into contact with over the years. And they may have been in other books, and it may be that I've forgotten them. But uh, for the most part, uh, there are plenty of surprises in this book. Sure, you'll uh, have the familiar stories about uh, two bases that uh, Mary Martin uh, responded when she heard that Enzio Pisa was going to be her leading man in South Pacific. But um, that's... uh, you have to expect that in a book like this. It has to be uh, complete. So, uh, But I didn't remember or know that Younger Than Springtime was a melody that was originally uh, written for Allegro. Um, and um, it was it was called My Wife and that. I, it, it, it may be that in Ethan Wooden's phenomenal book about Rodgers and Hammerstein, that's there. But I didn't um, remember it being there. Uh, what was really surprising to me were the number of titles that um, Oklahoma went through before it became Away mm-hmm. We Go. Um, and all of them sound terrible. Um, and yeah. you'd never think that uh, it would turn out to be a groundbreaking musical if it were called Swing Your Honey or One, Two, Three or Party Tonight. Singing Pretty? I mean, these are all titles that they really considered, according to Mr. Purdom, and uh, I'll trust that he's telling the truth, because I mean, even though it seems so hard to believe. Uh, none of them are very... Spe- not that Away We Go is any good either. I mean, really, I guess Away We Go is no better or worse than any of those four, but still, I was surprised to hear it. One of the things that I've heard along the way has always been that um, the famous response to Oklahoma when it was in New Haven, Mm. no legs, no gags, no chance, was actually cleaned up. Now, that line has been attributed to everybody from producer Mike Todd, the future husband of Elizabeth Taylor, to Walter Winchell's secretary. Walter Winchell was a big uh, columnist, very big, in fact, at the time. Um, I've always heard um, along the way that the actual line was no tits, no gags, no chance. And this is the first time I've read that um, that indeed was the case. And again, maybe it isn't, but Mr. Purdom uh, certainly has heard that as well and has taken uh, the opportunity to put that in his book. Um, I found uh, details like Josh Logan giving each of the CBs in South Pacific $25 to go out to army surplus stores and say, okay, 
uh, buy what you think your characters would wear. Um, very method actedy and 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 most uh, arresting. Um, uh, who knew that I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair? Bombed when it was first done, and Logan found a way to save it. That there was even talk about getting rid of it. So, mm-hmm. uh, and similarly speaking. Um, who thought that getting to know you uh, was something that Logan suggested uh, for the King and I, that um, he knew they needed a moment and he really mapped out essentially what the song should do. Just a suggestion. He wasn't working on the show. You know, hey, how about this, guys? Why don't you have a song where, you know, that type of thing. And um, which was in direct contrast to a producer, Leland Haywood, who was certainly a bright guy and later co-produced Gypsy. Leland Haywood said, uh, guys, this King and I close it New Haven. I mean, come on. I mean, this is never going to work out. And it turned out, of course, to be one of their uh, biggest hits. So um, there's a terrific letter that Gertrude Lawrence wrote. I I had always heard that, um, of course, that she was having terrible vocal difficulties as The King and I was um, happening. And um, I know in Morden's book, he talks about the fact that there's a letter that they were sending her essentially saying, um, listen, it's time to leave. You just know you just can't do it anymore. And then they didn't send it. It was in the files, and uh, but they didn't send it. But here you get the letter that Gertrude Lawrence wrote when she um, uh, either heard or inferred that um, they weren't happy with her. And I think that alone is worth the $32 price tag of the book. Um, what I didn't know is that essentially, for all intents and purposes, Rogers and Hammerstein kind of broke up after The King and I. They weren't really planning to do a next show. Um, they didn't make it public, but um, they really – it wasn't like, okay, what's next? I mean, for example, we always hear the famous story that when Harold Prince produced a show, whatever that show was, good, bad, or indifferent, smash hit, disaster, the next morning there would be a meeting saying, okay, what are we doing next? Well, Roger and Hammerstein didn't quite have that meeting after The King and I, and that's one of the reasons it never occurred to me that Rogers concentrated on the revival of Pal Joey and Hammerstein um, on the revival of his show, Music in the Air. So um, that was pretty interesting to me. Also, you know, Joe Mielsener, uh, who designed five of their shows, um, you might say, wait, 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 five. What do you mean five? I count four. Well, don't forget there was a play called Burning Bright that they produced. Um, so five shows um, sued them uh, for the King and I designs that they um, had in the movie. He felt that they shouldn't do that right down to that famous map that they had of, of um, Siam being so big and Burma being so small. So anyway, he sued them. And of course, um, Joe Meals and never did another show with them. So um, I had no idea that Yul Brenner called in sick as much as he did. Uh, he missed 116 performances and the show ran 1,246 performances. So that's close to 10% of the run. And um, we think of that as a more recent phenomenon, but apparently um, Yul Brenner was called calling on as much as people call out today. So um, um, little details in The Prince is Giving a Ball, um, that wonderful song where there's a litany of the names, uh, His Royal Highness and all those names to come. Uh, he was considering putting in Elvis, uh, which was a name that was very much in the news then. So, uh, And he was also influenced by uh, Hawaii's being admitted into the Union. Uh, there was talk about that happening. And um, when he wrote So Long Farewell, he actually was thinking of Audwita saying aloha, 
Uh, you know, it's just kind of funny to think, you know, it, you wouldn't really think of people uh, in Austria thinking of Aloha. But um, so so and by the way, even though it's a book that centers on Rogers and Hammerstein, Purdom goes back and uh, talks a little about the collaborations uh, that they had before. Um I, I certainly had heard that Lorenz Hart um, did a lot of writing on the fly, but I didn't know that some of his lyrics were actually written. I don't mean full songs. No, I just mean lines or ideas were actually written on discarded toilet paper rolls. I mean, you know, that's – so anyway, uh, so uh, it's it's a terrific book to say the least. And although he never gets salacious, he is more frank about the men's um, – extramarital mm. affairs than other biographers have been uh, you know, of course he has the luxury of time having passed too and um but um who you know, i had always heard that uh, hammerstein was a pretty straight up guy there was one uh, i think in the u ford book there was an illusion that um, he may have been attracted to somebody but here we hear um the name is named as a woman named temple texas that's her first name, Temple. What can I tell you? Hmm. Um, and uh, Rosemary Clooney uh, said that she knew Temple, Texas, and a lot of the um, details in I Enjoy Being a Girl, the song and flower drum song, actually referred to uh, what Temple, Texas uh, liked so, um, and facets of her personality. So um, Temple didn't have much of uh, a career. Um, in fact, she had gone eight years uh, without having a Broadway show when uh, she got into a show called Pipe Dream, which, of course, was written by Rogers and Hammerstein. So, um, anyway, so uh, lots of good stuff, lots of good stuff, and a uh, little more details on Trudy Rittman. Um, many have alluded that she was much more valuable to Rogers than um, a lot of people have assumed, um, and we get a few details of how that's true, and we also see that she did get rankled, she didn't get enough credit, and um, she went around talking about something that we assume Rogers has written that she claims actually he stole from a 16th century um, composer. So, um, hmm. so uh, <laughs> a funny story about Joe Layton, the choreographer and director, um, choreographer though of Sound of Music, uh, and um, an altercation he had with nuns, which is uh, certainly fun. And um, so... Anyway, um, I, I had a wonderful time reading this book. Uh, it flew by, and um, I recommend it extraordinarily highly. All right, Michael, uh, what's your take on the book? I do, too. It's it's just meticulously researched and beautifully well-written. I've really um, been looking forward to read it since Monday, April 9th. Uh, there was a program at the Bruner Walter Auditorium at Lincoln Center Library uh, with Todd Purdom, the author, uh, and Ted Chapin discussing the book and Rogers and Hammerstein. Uh, by the way, I'm not sure. Um, I don't remember if you said the full title, which is significant. It's something wonderful, Rogers and Hammerstein's Broadway Revolution, which I think is really appropriate and and not uh, an overstatement. They they just really changed the face of the musical theater. Um, yeah, uh, some of the things that Peter mentioned, the, the book also goes into uh, Hammerstein's unhappy first marriage, which I, I don't know if I ever had read anything about that before. Um, it, uh, yeah, it, it, there's a lot of details about uh, the king and I, uh, Gertrude Lawrence's illness and death. Also, the fact that um, I remember hearing this before, but he actually 
uh, Purdom provides uh, some quotes from reviews, and The King and I got much more mixed notices than uh, than certainly than Oklahoma and Carousel had received. Uh, so maybe that uh, I would think contributed to that temporary breakup of Rogers and Hammerstein. Um, uh, one other wonderful thing about this book is that it cl- includes several examples of first drafts of lyrics um, that Hammerstein wrote. I think Peter mentioned one or two of those. And I and th- there again, uh, most or all of those are n- news to me. There are so many uh, books that exploring um, various uh, stages of Stephen Sondheim's work, uh, including two really big books, uh, really really lengthy books by Sondheim himself uh, in which he examines his lyrics. So we've, I think, gotten to read many early efforts on his part. But Hammerstein, uh, I, I, uh, as I say, m- many, most of them were new to me. Um, I uh, think that the, oh, another really interesting section, and this can never be covered enough, is um, – how Hammerstein in this case was was really under suspicion in you know during the communist witch hunts of the 50s he was investigated by the house on american activities Commit- commission committee and it seems like um it might have gone really badly for him but he had some some very very powerful people in his corner including Dwight Eisenhower the president so um there there's it's uh, it's great the way this book balances the uh, the sections about the personal lives of the two men and and really dovetails it beautifully into the creation of these masterpieces. And also, uh, you know, as is often the case, uh, some of the most interesting sections of it are the sections about the shows that were not as successful, uh, including Allegro, which was not – a flop, but but, but certainly uh, not a huge hit. And then Pipe Dream, which is considered, uh, uh, I guess, maybe their one out-and-out out flop. Uh, and uh, Me and Juliet is another sort of also-ran show that that's, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's pretty much almost forgotten, I would say. I don't know if I've ever heard of any, any revival production that anywhere. Uh, Peter, have you ever seen a production of Me and Juliet? Uh, just at Mufti. Um, that's it. Um, it. It certainly is um, the least of their shows in the sense of interest. Yeah. Uh, it, it, you know, Allegro at least was a, a, an ambitious failure. And Pipe Dream, um, more people like the score. And we do hear, though we have heard this before, that Rogers was the one who wanted <clears throat> to do Me and Juliet, talking about the fact that um, what there's so many stories about, oh, the opening night and the under study taking over for the star and all that what about a show that's running what happens during that well unfortunately there isn't much drama there so um, that's why we don't see me and Juliet and the irony there of course is that writers are always told write what you know and so uh, and then and also I think Rogers Hammerstein wanted to write a show set in the present what was then the present time Mm -hmm. Uh, but they figured well a backstage uh, story about a musical but um yeah, the 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 completely original plot it it just is not very compelling at all, and and uh, rather uh, 
uh, I don't know. It's uh, what word would you say? It's it's very um, stereotypical and and kind of over melodramatic. I I, I would mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, that is Todd Purdom's uh, new book. Um, which is called uh, Something Wonderful, Rogers and Hammerstein's Broadway Revolution. Uh, we're hoping to get Todd on to talk with us further about the book uh, sometime in the next couple of weeks, so stay tuned for that. Peter, you got a chance to get over to the Cherry Lane Theater to see The Gentleman Caller, which is an Abington Theater Company production, so tell us about that. Um, it's remarkable in one respect, I'll tell you, and uh, they're very lucky to have this actor, Juan Francisco Villa, playing Tennessee Williams, um, because I, 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 I'm flabbergasted. This could not possibly have been in the play when Dawkins wrote it, but what happens is that uh, this actor is able to undress a man, specifically the character of William Inge, with his toes, with his toes. He's able to unbuckle a belt and (laughs) take it off and fling it across a room and, I mean, unbutton. And, I mean, it's just amazing. Uh, In case you think there's going to be any uh, nudity in the show, no, no, no. But uh, it comes damn close to it. Now, you might say, well, this is rather forward of Mr. Williams doing this um, while – because William Inge is really established as a very, very repressed, horribly repressed homosexual. But the year is 1944, and I mean, this is really a tough time for this. Williams is out, uh, at least when he's in um, either his hotel room or William Inge's apartment. He's not the least bit shy about admitting that this is what he likes and this is what he does. William Inge has far more problems with that. And while that seems okay, there's something that happens early in the play that's truly, truly startling, and I'll be specific as to what it is. Now, the situation is that William Inge is to interview Tennessee Williams. William Inge is writing for a St. Louis newspaper, and of course, Tennessee Williams, despite his first name, comes from St. Louis. So it's now that the glass menagerie is happening, albeit in Chicago, we have no idea how it's going to work out. This is before it happens, and I'm surprised there's not more talk about the fact that Tennessee Williams has already had a big failure, Battle of Angels, to close out of town. Um, and you know, but he does indicate that he's he doesn't have any money, and times are tough. But um, anyway, so. He needs this interview to publicize the play, and he gets over there, and because he's so out, in no time flat, William Inge jumps on him and starts undressing him like crazy. Now, frankly, um, I've been interviewed a number of times, and nobody's ever done this to me, and I've interviewed thousands of people. I've never done this to them. I just Ah. (laughs) – I am flabbergasted to see anybody doing this, especially in 1944, especially for the rest of the play where it's really a case that um, William Inge is really, really, really uptight, and every time the Tennessee Williams tries to – to uh, come on to him, which he does maybe a half dozen times. It's no, no, no. Um, the apple tree was originally called Come Back, Go Away, I Love You, and maybe that should be the title for this play. So, But there's a lot of cat and mouse stuff going on here. Oh, my God. And there are some um, references of plays yet to come. William Inge does talk about the fact that his dog ran away, but he's hoping that uh, little Lulu Bell will come back. Um, 
<laughs> Williams um, has an accident, uh, and which he attributes to ice and um, perhaps uh, that he didn't have enough ice in his glass uh, because he was drinking. Um, and so for this, much of the second act, he's walking around with a crutch, which is very reminiscent, of course, of Cat in a Hot Tin Roof. So, so uh, little things like that are kind of charming details, um, I guess. Um, I did feel at the beginning that um, Juan Francisco Villa was almost doing a Carol Channing imitation as um, Tennessee Williams. Uh, and I thought, oh, this is going to be a very, very long night. It is, by the way, a long night. It's... Um, a play that clocks in more than two hours and seems longer, frankly. But um, but I thought he was way over the top at the beginning, and I'm still to this moment not sure if it was a case that he settled down or I just got used to his um, overly flamboyant interpretation. Um, people who don't like non-traditional casting are going to uh, not take to this play because Daniel K. Isaac is a Korean actor and certainly doesn't look anything like William Inge. Um, the play is also structured not unlike The Glass Menagerie in that Tennessee Williams talks directly to us at the beginning and occasionally uh, comes back to talk to us. So we have that narrator uh, device uh, and... Um, so that seems pretty obvious for a play called The Gentleman Caller, which establishes the fact that for a while the Glass Menagerie was called The Gentleman Caller. So uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I wish I could be more enthusiastic. I really do. I, I, I think a play about these two guys really should be, um, well, better than this one is, I'm sorry to say. Um, and I, I, I really can't recommend it unless you're really, really interested in these guys. But, you know, it is spurring me. I just went last night. It is spurring me to look more into these um, two guys' relationship, whatever it was. I, I don't know how deep it was. If, if what um, Dawkins is putting on stage is 100% accurate, 0% accurate, somewhere in between. But it is going to send me to the, the, the various biographies uh, to see if indeed there's any, any indication whatsoever that William Inge um, threw himself on Tennessee Williams after about four minutes in his apartment. Hmm. Um, but whatever I read, I can't believe I'm going to see that uh, he was able to undress uh, a guy with his toes. Um, and um, I, I really want to know how this came up. If uh, if Juan Francisco Villa said to his director, Tony Speciale, uh, you know something I can do that might be worthwhile here? I can't imagine that this was something written into the play. And because I love, if it were, I'd love to see the auditions, you know, of, of guys trying to make it happen with their toes. So, um <laughs> they'll have to be the kinkiest auditions that ever were. Well, who knows? But anyway, so alas, not uh, good news from the Cherry Lane Theater where the gentleman caller is playing. I was wondering if maybe that ability to undress someone with one's toes, is that maybe listed on that actor's resume under special skills? Special skills, right. <laughs> good for you. Yeah, right. <laughs> it should be. It should be. Uh, imagine... Uh going into that audition and having them say to you from behind the table, so right. can you do this thing? All right, so that wraps up the review section. Some things that happened in the news that I wanted to get your feedback on. Uh, City Center announced their uh, 2019 season with uh, Call Me Madam, Rogers and Hearts, I Married an Angel, and High Button Shoes in uh, 2019, starting in February. So, uh Peter, what do we think of this lineup? 
Well, uh, certainly it's better than it has been in the sense that we have shows that are truly obscure, two of them. For the last few years, we've had one obscure show at Encores um, at best. But uh, here we have I Married an Angel, which um, certainly hasn't been seen in these parts for a long time. The only time I've seen it was uh, uh, in the Berkshires, I would say about mm, close to 30 years ago. So this was an excellent idea. It certainly has a very nice score. Um, Barbara Streisand fans from way back when will remember I, I, I'll – Call that man in the street. Um, so, and I married an angel. Of course, is a very uh, famous, lovely song too. So, and because there's a movie version that is hardly faithful to mm. the score, as movie versions certainly were in those days, back in the 30s, even in the 40s, uh, they weren't uh, uh, replicating what really happened in New York City um, in in these uh, theaters. So, uh, this is really quite a welcome one. And um, I hope it gets a cast album. Uh, we all heard that when City Center was revamped, they had this marvelous new sound system where they were going to start recording albums. And certainly they did with Paint Your Wagon. And certainly they did with Pipe Dream. And certainly they haven't done others. So um, I'm, I'm, I will admit, I don't think we need a new uh, Me and My Girl or Grand Hotel. But there have been others that we would have liked to have heard. So, um, so I'm hoping we're going to get an I Married an Angel because there's no cast album existing of that. Now, while there is a cast album of High Button Shoes, it's uh, very, very truncated. There are only, I think, eight songs because in those days it was put out literally as an album. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we call these things albums. They're really not. The technical term for album is one that has um, leaves of um, uh, inserts where you put in the records. And in the days of 78 RPM records, when they used to be a show, they used to be four discs or five sometimes, but usually four in which they had one song on each side put in. So you'd buy this big bulky package and it better be careful with it because these records were breakable. And um, so there are only eight songs recorded from High Button Shoes. And here we may have a chance to get the entire score finally mm -hmm. done. And the eight songs are very, very nice. They're written by Julie Stein and Sammy Kahn, uh, certainly two professionals who would go on to, uh, certainly Julie Stein went on to bigger things, even though High Button Shoes was a major hit in its day. Um, though a lot of people said that had a lot to do with uh, Jerome Robbins and his um, ballet with dealing with Bailing beauties. Uh, still, um, we want to hear the whole score. So um, here's hoping that happens. There was a lot of consternation about Call Me Madam because mm. um, they had done it before. And uh, it was one of the first ones they, they had done. And Tyne Daly certainly did a bang up job with it. Frankly, um, my reaction to this is more well, I don't know if this show really should be done anymore from the vantage point of um, feminists because, whoa, uh, <laughs> I remember when it was done at the Paper Mill Playhouse with Leslie Uggams who did a fine job, but the lead of my review was it's so interesting that a musical about politics should be so politically incorrect <laughs> because the whole point of Sally Adams is the fact that she's a, um, a, a, a certainly assigned to um, be ambassador to this very small country, a fictional country, although um, <laughs> rather whimsically, book writers Lindsay and Krauss did say that it's about two fictional countries, and one being the United States. But um, it, it was based on Promesta, the fact that she got the job because she was a big party go giver, and uh, really, does that qualify you for um, an office uh, in politics? Uh, needless to say, since then, we've seen somebody with no political experience whatsoever <laughs> getting a job that's even more significant than being an ambassador to a small country. But and that's another story. So um, she, right at the very beginning, as she's taking the oath of office, 
Um, the moment after the oath, oath of office is completed, there she is saying, uh, where is this country? I don't know where this country is. So she seems stupid. And the idea of a woman being stupid in a job is something I don't think a lot of people are going to find funny today. We talked about the My Fair Lady problems um, with Higgins being so nasty or uh, insensitive to Eliza. And um, it's, it's one of the reasons that this revival has to soft pedal that because they have no idea what to do really um, in, in right. an era where we don't tolerate this. So I think Call Me Madam is a big mistake from that vantage point, even though it has a terrific song, a score. Uh, how terrific? In, in the Tony Awards of that season, Irving Berlin got the Tony as best score, and it was the same season as Guys and Dolls. I have a feeling the Tonys would like to take that one back. And, uh, <laughs> But this was early in the era of the Tonys. It had only been uh, three or four years uh, since the inception of the awards. So I have a feeling what was going on here was more like a Lifetime Achievement Award to Irving Berlin rather than um, anything uh, that had to do with real worth. Because really, uh, yeah, even though Call Me Madam is a fun score to listen to and has some real nice toe-tapping numbers and one of his favorite quad libits um, where two people sing um, alternating verses and then put them together uh, I don't think it can stack up with guys and dolls but uh, but you know I, I a lot of people are questioning uh, why repeat well to be fair you know, 25 years have passed and uh, a lot of people who were interested in the golden age of Broadway musicals weren't born then and weren't going to the theater then and um, so uh, here's their chance to see it but you know, uh, when people say there are a lot of shows they can choose from, why repeat one? There is something to be said for that, too. Well, um, there's been speculation from some of my circle that perhaps Call Me Madam perhaps was chosen because they have a particular big star in mind. Uh, I'm not sure why else they would have zeroed in on that show so for all the reasons you said it was done before. Uh very well by Tyne Daly, and that is uh, in the era when they were recording those shows. So we have a, a really nice comprehensive recording of that score. I kind of almost think they wouldn't choose it without having a major star lined up. But on the other hand, it's so far in the future, um, so that that would seem maybe unlikely for that reason. Uh, very curious to see it, but I, I do agree that um, if you, if they're going to start redoing things, I don't know why this one was chosen um, outside of the encore's umbrella. The, the next season uh, city center is also doing a big production of a chorus line uh, directed by Bob Avian and choreographed by Byrick Lee uh, recreating, of course, the, um, the original Michael Bennett choreography. And then uh, they've announced Lady in the Dark uh, with Victoria Clark, which I'm looking forward to, even though that's another show uh, that they did. And that that had been done under the Encore's umbrella with Christine Ebersole. So um, some really interesting choices, some controversial choices. We'll, we'll see how these shows are received. All right. Um... Some other things that, uh, quickly in the news. Uh, the Play That Goes Wrong announced a uh, closing date of August 26th and a national tour. So uh, you'll be able to catch that uh, around the United States, I'd imagine, in various uh, places over the next couple of months. Um, I recommend also, it highly. <laughs> yeah, a lot of fun. I, a lot of fun. I tell you, I've been five times. <laughs> oh, really? That many times? 
How yeah, does that once compare? in England, once in England, once in once England. In, that's right, once in England. Yeah. And how does that compare to your Grand Hotel record? Oh, <laughs> only about a third or a quarter, but uh, <laughs> but still, um, I I have a wonderful type of play that goes wrong, and um, I I do hope the people around the country wind up going and um, find it as uh, funny as I do. <laughs> One of those times that you saw it, did you get to see Mark Evans? Uh, no, but I did get to see Preston Truman Boyd, who, as an understudy, oh. was phenomenal. I can't imagine being an understudy in this production. I just can't. I, I, it's flabbergasting to me to watch people come on not doing this um, every every night of their lives and having to contend with disaster after disaster. It, it's, it's just amazing to me. So, um, no, I don't think I saw Mark Evans. I mentioned him because he sure. is currently is currently in the show, and I guess he, he took a leave in order to do Me and My Girl at Encore. Right. Where he was very well received. Very well received. Yeah. Yeah, people really enjoyed the beginning of the second act and uh, his hijinks during that uh, number. Yep. We also uh, heard this week. Now, if I, I throw all of these names into a pot and mix it up and um, make a beautiful meal here, we'll, uh, Craig Zidane, Neil Merman, uh, uh, Scott Whitman, Mark Shaman, Casey Nicola, we have... Uh, an announcement that Some Like It Hot is going to come to Broadway in 2020. So sometimes when you put all these wonderful ingredients together, it comes out great. Sometimes when you put all these ingredients together, it could be a train wreck. But uh, so, Well, Craig, uh, Craig, Zayden yeah. and Neil, Craig Zayden and Neil Merrin, I, I think that's how it's pronounced, uh, they have had some great successes and some not so much, uh, especially with their uh, TV musicals. But this, but this um, is is announced as a stage production, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it. Uh, everybody knows what I'm going to say right now, and that is, of course, <laughs> that this property has been musicalized before, back in 1972, when it was called Sugar. In those days, when you used a new name for a Broadway musical, not just the name of the movie on which it's based. Um, of course, as time went on, when productions of Sugar happened, it was that was called Some Like It Hot. Um, once again, the aforementioned Julie Stein wrote the music, Bob Merrill wrote the uh, lyrics, and Peter Stone wrote the book, and. Um, I saw it in Toronto tryout, where it was one of the biggest disasters I had ever seen in out-of-town tryouts. It then came to Boston, uh, where I was living, and it improved markedly, but still wasn't that good. Um, the score starts off pretty well, and then the in the days when we used to have sides of records, the first side was really uh, quite good, and the second side, um, after the title song, uh, was less good, and there was a lot of diminishing returns as time went on. So um, I'll tell an anecdote um, uh, about this, because um, the title song was called Sugar, of course, but uh, the real line in it was doing it for sugar, that the guys, uh, both Jerry and Joe, were going to do something nice for sugar. They were doing it for sugar. So anyway, um, Peter Stone and I were doing uh, the ASCAP Awards, giving out uh, money to uh, songwriters. Uh, we, we do that. We um, give out anywhere from $100 to $5,000 for songwriters who are writing uh, Broadway musicals, or at least trying to. And um, there we are, and it's early in the morning, and uh, they bring in this enormous tray of pastries, and Peter Stone has one. 
and Peter Stone has two. And as he's reaching for the third one, he said, I don't know why I'm doing this. And I said, you're doing it for sugar. And ironically enough, he didn't react at all. And it led me to believe that he <laughs> didn't remember ever having written uh, sugar. And yet, ironically enough, I am told that by his estate that that's the show from which his estate makes the most money. You would think it would be 1776, of course, and of course that's the masterpiece, but it isn't. The reason because 1776 – until recently, let's say, was really dependent on men. We have seen a lot of productions now where they say, the hell with that, we want to do the show, we're going to do it with women, and so what. But for the longest time, and don't forget, 1776 is about to be 50 years old, it was done solely with men, and men in community theater are not um, an easy thing to find. So, so, But you can always find two guys who want to be in drag um, and uh, perform. So some, uh, some Like It Hot's musical version, Sugar, was done quite a bit. Now, um, I certainly have the greatest respect for this songwriting team of, of, of certainly Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman. And I am fascinated to see what they're going to do with it. Um, and uh, I've always felt that what should happen in Some Like It Hot is that um, a question be answered that has never been answered in even, even this masterpiece of a movie because there they are. They are dead broke, dead broke. They have no money and they've got to get out of town because they've witnessed a murder. And how are they going to get out of town? And there are jobs for um, a saxophonist and a bassist, but it's with an all-girl band, so they're going to have to pretend to be both. Where do they get these clothes that has never been established in the movie? <laughs> <laughs> Never. And they're broke. Where do they get these clothes? Now, one of the problems with Sugar was the fact that when you first saw them come in to get on the train, there was this enormous song called The Beauty That Drives Men Mad, which starts off, Hello World, We're Daphne and Josie. If you are trying to get out of town quietly, why do you come on singing this song, Hello World, and <laughs> making a big display of yourselves? Okay. My answer is that the Jack Lemmon character, if you know the movie, the Robert Morse character, if you know the uh, musical, uh, is a secret transvestite. And I want a scene where when uh, they find out that these jobs are available, I want the other guy, the uh, Tony Curtis, the um, Tony Roberts character, to say, but where are we going to get the clothes and have him say, um, I, I, I think I can get some. And we start suspecting that that's the case. And when you do the beauty that drives men mad, um, you have him. I'm talking about now the Jack Lemmon, um, Robert Moss character singing the song while the other guy's trying to shut him up. I mean, his fuses are all blown. He can't believe his good fortune. He's able to be out in the daytime, out finally in the clothes that he's only worn in the um, in his secrecy of his apartment. I think that solves that problem. And I'll be very interested to see if there's any attempt to do anything like that in this new version of uh, Some Like It Hot. And I dare say it would have been very, very ambitious and ballsy, frankly, to do that in 1972. And it might have been too soon for that. La Caja Fall was still 11 years away. But still, still, I would find it um, a, at least a new take on the material. Because if um, the previous take on the material wasn't anything special, even with some good songs, is this a musical that could succeed simply because it has good songs. Um, I, I wonder. So um, we'll see what happens. And of course, we'll have to wait a while, but we'll see what happens with um, the musical that probably will be called Some Like It Hot. 
Well, and over and above all that, it's going to be really interesting to see how that central plot point is dealt with in the current political environment in the in the Me Too era. I mean, it uh, the humor of the piece is uh, very much of another time. I I would say uh, these two guys do dress up as women and they and they pass for women, even though it may be (laughs) unbelievable in the eyes of the audience. And they both uh, basically become smitten with with sugar, uh, the girl Um, and who you know who she is taken in by it and there there are many um many aspects of the original piece the, the original film and the original musical that i think will have to be i think will have to be tweaked uh in order to make the humor acceptable in the present day but they're so inherent to what we know of of the piece that i, I don't uh, I don't know if audiences will accept major changes. Um, do you think that that might become an issue? <laughs> sure. I mean, I, what I just uh, proposed was, of course, extraordinarily radical, and I'm not sure that the uh, audience would take to it or would find it delightful. But I, it never occurred to me, Michael, and that's a very good point about the Me Too um, movement. And uh, sure, you know, I, it, they may get away with it because it is the uh, 20s, and um, that's what yeah. happened. And, but they may be questioned, why bring this up? Why do this? So that never occurred to me. Good for you for bringing up a very important point. Well, and uh, who knows if they'll retain the famous last line uh, from the movie and and the musical, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the famous last line, because that actually, in a way, is uh, can be seen as, as forward-looking, uh, depending on how you look at it. And so... Uh, Maybe maybe they'll uh, consider that a good ending point still, and uh, and kind of tweak the other stuff around that. For a while, in fact, uh, the musical was going to be called "Nobody's Perfect." Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. see how that would have. Worked. I know, I know, I know. Yeah. But anyway, that's uh, that was. Um, uh, and you know, when you think of it, um, even if, if if you did not know that was the last line of the property. Uh, when you think of it, seeing these two guys going through these um, convolutions with uh, with pretending to be women, one could see why it could be called Nobody's Perfect. Uh, so, uh, sure. so, but anyway, um, yeah, it didn't happen that way. And certainly we have a tradition in the musical theater of celebrating um, women and, and as title characters, um, from Molly to Mame to... Uh, to, of course, Dolly and so many others, uh, Sally, you know, <laughs> um, so many, so many um, have uh, uh, trumpeted the name of the women. And one of the problems that Sugar got into was the fact that uh, Elaine Joyce, now Mrs. Neil Simon, um, was considered not to be so good in the part. And um, and that's a tough thing to do, you know, um, but the words she's no Marilyn Monroe came up a lot during 1972, <laughs> a lot. All right. Uh, uh, a few quick other things before we get out of here is that uh, Roundabout and Fiasco Theater is going to present uh, Merrily We Roll Along off-Broadway in 2019. Uh, it, I'm personally excited to see a Merrily production here in New York, um, uh, although some yeah. folks that I know are less than excited that Fiasco is going to be doing it. What You guys have any thoughts about this? 
my first thought is that it might turn out to be a really good idea because the very minimalist uh, anti naturalistic approach that they use uh, I think might be really really conducive to helping that show uh, since it is so uh, you know the, the issues with the with the, the timeline and uh, moving backwards and 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 other uh, the episodic nature of it. Uh, um, I think. I think, generally speaking, the less realistic a production of Merrily We Roll Along is, the more successful it, it can be. Uh, that was that was my first thought. I'll see if that winds up panning out. Well, I guess uh, if you're a musical theater fan, um, by now. <laughs> You've seen a production of Merrily We Roll Along somewhere, be it in your high school, college, community theater, or even a professional production in your area. There was um, one that I liked very much last year at the Huntington Theater in Boston. So um, if you've seen Merrily, I think you uh, will certainly entertain the notion of Fiasco doing it. They they certainly go out on a limb and do things in very, very different ways. Um, and their Into the Woods was really, really quite entertaining. But again, all of us had seen Into the Woods. And as a result, we could fill in the blanks that Fiasco, um, which there's a, a ton of doubling. There were very few uh, people on stage, uh, all that kind of business. Right. Um, uh, so uh, so this is going to be a radical production. And um, those of us who know Merrily, I think, can – you should pardon the expression, quotation marks, take it. Uh, if you're coming to Merrily for the first time, I have a feeling this is not the production to see. Um, and, of course, it's it's terrible of me to even say that because we haven't remotely seen what's on uh, their plate. We have no idea what ideas they're coming up with. And we, it might be, oh, my God, they've solved it. You know, even though I think Merrily is a fine show as is and have since closing night. I mean, I, I saw the closing night of the original production. I thought they had fixed it. Sorry, anybody who feels differently, I feel they fixed it. Have they improved it? Yeah, I think they have actually. But I had no problem with Merrily We Roll Along on closing night at um, then the Alvin Theater. So um, I, I am interested to see what's happened. And I imagine that this is going to be a very, very popular uh, title uh, that people are going to find in advance, whether or not after they come out of the theater, they're going to be exhilarated or disappointment, disappointed is of course yet to be seen, but um, I predict it's going to be a, a, a 50-50 proposition. People are going to say, wow, what imagination, what style, boy, fiasco. you got to give it credit to these guys for always doing something different, for looking at the text and finding things you didn't know was there. And other people saying, but wait, I didn't, I didn't understand it. So many people were confused by the Amer original Merrily We Roll Along by simply going backwards. Um, a minimalist production may um, <laughs> exacerbate those problems. So, uh, But I'm delighted that uh, they're doing it, and um, I'm raring to go. Uh, you, you mentioned about how many times I've seen Grand Hotel. I don't think I'm that far behind with Merrily, frankly. Uh, hmm. you know, and and I, I've always said that if they tried to run it, Back then in 1981, if they went and s hung around for 200 performances, that nobody would be interested. That the smartest thing they ever could have done was to close it after 16. Always leave them wanting more. You know, mm -hmm. you don't want us in town? Fine, we'll go away. And everybody, every director in the world said, I can fix it. I'll do it. So, uh, and Fiasco obviously feels the same way. So let's see what happens. 
Also in the news this week, uh, Moises Kaufman and the uh, Tectonic Theater Project is going to do a 20th anniversary of the Laramie Project uh, with a bunch of stars uh, to read it as a fundraiser. So uh, I wanted to put this on our listeners' radar screens because uh, these the things that we're mentioning today uh, could be hard to get tickets in smaller venues and things like that if you wanted to take a listen uh uh, if you wanted to attend these shows, Neil Patrick Harris, Mary Louise Parker, Billy Porter, and more are going to be part of the Laramie Project. And uh, to wrap up this morning, I read uh, our friend Joe Domenowitz over in the, over in the Daily News was uh, saying that a number of people are falling down at the Lyric Theater and getting hurt. Yeah. <laughs> Have you mm. guys, uh, when you saw Harry Potter, did you notice any some sort of weird spacing or unnatural rake down in the orchestra? I didn't, in fact, uh, but I was seated very far back. So um, uh, I, I have a feeling what they're talking about was something that just wasn't relevant to where I was. Hmm. I didn't notice it either, but some people are suggesting that that was carried forward from the uh, the original design of, of the theater, and that, that was not one of the things that was changed in the renovation. I don't know, but some people have said that. And then... Uh, that it was also an issue then. Uh, sometimes uh, other people are saying that the that the lighting uh, of the of the where the steps are might be an issue. But I I only know what uh, what Joe wrote. Yeah, I was uh, shocked to hear uh, John Simon got so hurt. Mm-hmm. He got very hurt. Uh, mm-hmm. Broke three ribs. He was in the hospital for a bit of a bit of time, uh, and. Uh, but I don't recall what I was asking Matt during, uh, and maybe Michael, you just answered it during today on Broadway. Was that uh, was the how where the seats redesigned? I don't remember that center aisle before, but it might be that I just don't remember it. And that very large middle uh, opening after like ten, twelve mm-hmm. years or so, I, I don't remember them. Doesn't mean that they weren't there before, but uh, certainly that center aisle going down to the first ten row first 10 rows of the theater and the orchestra there seems to be a uh, a very um, uh, very abnormal rake for an orchestra so and speaking of people getting hurt just briefly uh, Jim Parsons oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. was injured during a curtain call of a preview of the boys in the band and uh, that night's performance had to be cancelled because the understudy uh, or cover uh, standby, or uh, Matt mm. McGrath was was had not been fully rehearsed because they were still in previews. Uh, but then Matt went on. I, I think I'm not sure if it was one or more than one performance. At least he went on on Monday because I know people who were there. Yeah, yeah and he is uh, he is such a brilliant actor. I I would have <laughs> almost loved to be there when he when he went on to see him do it. Not that I don't want to see Jim Jim Parsons, Bush. but because uh, I do, but. Um, Matt is really great, so um, he deserves some kind of a, a medal for <laughs> going on in that really pretty massive role. Um, it is, it is, without mm-hmm. without being fully rehearsed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and there's a sign at the theater now that says uh, Jim Parson is performing with uh, a boot and a cane, and that uh, he is not in pain. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought that was an interesting sign for the lobby of a theater. 
So before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. One of the ways is iHeartRadio plays us, TuneIn plays us, Stitcher plays us, Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can get finer podcasts, you can find Broadway Radio. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found at Broadway Radio in the show notes. And links to some of the things we've talked about today can also be found there, including a link to Todd Purdom's book, which you should all buy. And it's a great present. Yes. So, uh, Peter, why don't you give an answer to last week's trivia? Yeah, the question was, it said that all performers lie about their ages. If so, which Broadway legend, one whose life story became a musical, lied about his age the least? The answer is George M. Cohan, or George M. as his Broadway bio musical called him, who said that he was born on the 4th of July when he actually had been born on the 3rd of July. So he lied by a day. I'm sure not to make himself seem younger, of course, but to seem uber patriotic. David Kincannon was the first to get it. At 1.57 p.m., mind you, that's pretty early. <laughs> Followed by Richard Brennan, Pat Payne, Jack Leshner, and Brigadood. This week's question. Five of the six Rodgers and Hammerstein movie musicals based mm. on their hit Broadway shows. I'm only talking about the ones, I'm not talking about State Fair, okay? Five of the six Rodgers and Hammerstein movie musicals based on their hit Broadway shows had something in common. Carousel is the exception. Why? And indeed, Todd Purdom's book will tell you why it is the exception. All right. So if you have an answer to this, uh, email us at TriviaBroadwayRadio.com, and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Be frightened like me, the darker the night. See you there. It's me.